It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. The first of hopefully many sweep editions of Rico Bronia. The New York Mets play a bizarre, strange, odd. I know I'm saying the same word, just, you know, basically the same meaning over and over again. But that's what this was, a very bizarre three-game series against the putrid Oakland A's. Let me just start right there. We all know the A's are putrid. They are, I think, going to end up being the worst team in Major League Baseball. They're off to a start, which their record is 3-13. and They have no starting pitching. They have an owner that basically seems like he's losing on purpose. With that said, you got to win baseball games. And this is not, you know, a given that just because you play a really bad team, you're going to beat them every single time. It's not a given. So in baseball, you never throw this back. I remember even going into this road trip, I said to you, go win two out of three because I know how difficult it is to sweep series. So the fact they got a sweep, I mean, I'm pumped up because I also thought the Sunday game, and we'll get into all three games, and obviously the big headline, Brett Beatty's coming, and he's going to make his debut, his season debut, in Los Angeles, which we'll get to. But I really thought Sunday's game was a loss. It felt that way from the beginning. It felt that way in the top of the ninth. It felt that way in the bottom of the ninth. It fell that way in the top of the 10th. It felt that way in the bottom of the 10th. In fact, I'm going to reverse things. Let's start off with Sunday's game. We'll talk all about the finale of this series We'll go back and take a look at the historical game from Friday and the game from Saturday. But Sunday's game, and this is what really has me pumped up as bad as the A's are, that's the game you look at and say you lose it most of the time. No matter how bad your opponent is, you lose that game. When your bullpen, by choice but also by necessity, is not going to be used by Buck Showalter, and he said as much after the game. He was never going to use Adam Adovino. He was trying to stay away from Brooks Raley. He was not going to use Drew Smith. David Robertson was available because he didn't throw that many pitches on Saturday. But when you have Jimmy Yacobonis in a game in the ninth inning and he can't throw a goddamn strike to start the bottom of the ninth inning and Buck's not going to do anything about it, he's not going to rescue him. That feels like a, yeah, it's a 162-game season. You can't manage every game like Game 7 of the World Series. Kind of loss. And the fact the Mets were able to pull this one out of their ass makes me feel very, very good. First of all, they didn't hit. And honestly, I know they scored 17 runs in Game 1, so they obviously hit in Game 1. But they really didn't hit in Game 2, and they didn't hit in Game 3. Think about it this way. The Mets scored their runs. The run that put them up one nothing was on a home run by Tommy Pham. Great. That's fantastic. Game's tied at one. The home run that put them back up two to one in the sixth is a home run by Francisco Lindor. They're now down to their final few outs in the ninth. The run that tied the game in the ninth was a home run by Pete Alonso. For, so for as much crap as we talk about how this team doesn't hit home runs, home runs bailed their ass out on Sunday. They hit three of them. And it was their entire offense until they somehow scratched out a run in the 10th on a freaking wild pitch. A wild pitch. But as far as this game is concerned, we get the news on Saturday that Max Scherzer is being pushed back. 
it's clearly an injury because Gary Cohn even brought it up on the broadcast Sunday. Hey, is it possible they're just looking for an excuse to push him back to the Dodgers series? No, no, he's he's 39 years old. He's had back issues in the past. That's not new. He had injury issues last year. The idea that there isn't something that's going to bother him every once in a while, of course, it's going to happen. So he's bothered by this back. They give him an MRI, which shows that there was a level of concern. And keep this in mind, even though Max Scherzer says he's going to pitch on Wednesday and the Mets plan on pitching him on Wednesday, there's no guarantee of that. You know, they they pushed him back. They bought him a few extra days. They were going to look for the extra guy this week in California anyway. So it, in theory, isn't a big deal. But until Max Scherzer takes the mound on Wednesday, we don't know how serious this is. So you go into this game with Jose Buto making the start. I actually feel good about Buto making the start. Even though the one start he's made as a Met a year ago was that infamous game against the Phillies when Mark Canna, it was the Mark Canna game. He hit the game tying home run, the game win. I forget who hit the game winning. Did he hit the game winning home run too? I forget what he did. Bottom line was it was a great comeback against the Phillies and Buto was terrible. Gave up a home run early to Alec Bohm. They gave up another home run to Alec Bohm. Bottom line is he gave up a ton of runs, had a 15 ERA in the one start that he made. But watching him in spring training and even seeing that how he had pitched so far at Syracuse, I didn't think he was going to dominate. But against this A's lineup, I thought he'd pitch well. And he really did pitch well. He did. He battled. He got into the sixth inning. He put himself into trouble. Like he gives up the two-out double to Rooker in the first, gets out of it. Bailed out by some great defense by Nimmo in the second. More on that because he was the star of this game. Gets through a two-on, two-out jam in the second. Gets through a two-on, two-out jam in the third. Gets helped out by the interference call on the caught stealing in the fourth. And outside of the RBI single to Esturi Ruiz. And that could have been worse because the A's came back in that fifth and got the first two guys on base. Ruiz ties the game up. And now it's two, three, and four. The order coming up. And Buto got through the fifth inning. And I was surprised Buck let him start the sixth. But I think Buck was just desperate to find outs. He knew what maybe we didn't realize at the time, which was he was not going to have much of a bullpen. So there were two stars of this game besides, you know, the obvious Pete Alonso hitting a game-tying home run. Two underrated, quote-unquote, stars of this game. Number one is Jose Buto. Pitches into the sixth inning, five-plus innings, one run, gets out of trouble. And the other guy you got to give major credit to is Denny Reyes. Denny Reyes comes into this game, gets through the sixth, and then look dominant in the seventh inning. So on a day in which the Mets aren't going to have much of a bullpen, Reyes gives them six really important outs. He's not the only star of the game. I mean, the other stars of the game are obvious. You know, the, the guys are with the home runs. Alonzo for hitting the game, tying home run in the ninth inning, and then the incredible defense of Brandon Nemo. Because Brandon Nemo really saved the game. He absolutely saves the game. After Alonzo hits that home run in the ninth to tie the game up. And by the way, let me just say this. I got to actually give credit. This may shock you I'm saying this. I have to give credit to John Curtis. Because even though Curtis blew the lead, when he gave up the two-run double to Le, uh, Shay, Shay Langoliers, Langoliers, it's like Chandelier, so it's Langolier, whatever. He gives up the two-run double to Shay. I thought this game was going to get worse. I thought he was going to give it up, give it up completely, especially after he walked Ryan Noda 
And he actually got out of it. So I give him credit for that because I thought for a second this game was going to get out of hand. It was going to go from three to two to five to two. So he gets those last two outs, and it turned out to be huge because look what happens. Alonzo comes up, hits the absolute bomb right after Lindor got robbed of a base hit, and we have ourselves a tie game. But Jimmy Yacobonis comes in, and I'm mad, but I'm not mad because I know why Buck Showalter doesn't want to use Brooks Raley, Drew Smith, Adam Adovino. I get it. Like, it's a 162-game season. You have a series coming up with L.A. You don't have off days for another week, right? So you can't just burn everybody out. So I'm angry that Yacobonis is in because he sucks, or at least I thought he did, because he's walking the first guy on four pitches and giving up a blue pip to Rooker. So we all think this game's curtains. But I, So I'm mad, but I can't be mad. Like for any Met fan who was mad in that ninth inning, saying, Buck, what are you doing? We do have to take a step back. He doesn't want to burn out his bullpen on April 16th. He's managing for the 162. Now, here's the critique you could have had. And I think this is a, it's a debate because I, I actually don't even have this critique, which is if you have Robertson warming up in the top of the ninth inning in case the Mets take the lead, and he was warming up, why not just go to him? The A's have the heart of the order coming up in the ninth. Just keep the game tight. Extend the game. It's like the NBA thought of you want to extend the game. Robertson comes in. You're not dealing with the runner on second. Nobody out. Crap. Get three outs. Get this thing to the 10th inning. Now, the problem is when you get those three outs from Robertson, assuming you do, now you got to go to Yacobonis. It's not like you're going to hide him forever because you're not going to pitch Robertson for two innings. That's it. And if we accept that, Rayleigh and Smith and Adovino aren't available. And there's good reason specifically for Smith and Adovino, not as much Rayleigh because Adovino threw 30 pitches on Saturday, whatever it was. So I actually side with Buck. I'm good with just going to Yacobonis. And I'll tell you why. As much as I want to win this game, you are looking at the next series as well. Can't play every game as if it's the end all be all. If I use Robertson in the ninth and he keeps the game tied, right? And then Jakob Bonus comes in in the 10th and gives it all up. I feel like I wasted David Robertson. Yeah, I extended the game, but was it really worth it? I didn't get the win, right? I didn't win. Now he's not available for the first game against the Dodgers. So I may as well just use Jakob Bonus. If he keeps me in the game, great. If he blows it, uh, at least I didn't use any of my key guys. Do you agree with that, by the way, Pete, that thought on the Robertson Jakob Bonus order? Yeah, I wouldn't want to waste Robertson there in the ninth. Yacobonis was fine. Like you said, he's going to have to pitch eventually anyway. And the last thing you want, like you said, is to feel like you wasted Robertson. You get to late innings or whatever, extra innings, and you got to get Yacobonis in there, and he blows it anyway. It's just – it's not a point That's why, like, if they took the lead, so, which they did, yeah, you go to Robertson, go win the game. And you know if he – if he shuts the door, you get the win. So, yeah, you don't have Robertson for Monday in L.A., but you got the win. If the Mets didn't score in the 10th, yeah, I would have rode Yacobonis all night. That sounds weird. I would have had Yacobonis come back. <laughs> I set myself up for this crap sometimes. Oh, no. I would have put him out there for the 10th yeah. inning. Now, if Robertson had blown the lead in the 10th, 
it sucks. It sucks. But what are you going to do? But now you're screwed because now you got nobody left. <laughs> now you're probably going to Brooks rally when you don't want, but either way, I agree with what bugs doing, even though in the course of the game, I'm sitting there like you, I'm live watching this game in the ninth inning. I'm pissed. Not at anybody in particular. I'm just like, Oh my God, I have to watch Jimmy Yaka bonus. Try to keep this game tied, but he did. And he did because of Brandon Nemo. Brandon Nimmo's defense in center field has been so freaking good the last two years. And it's stunning to think about how average to bad he was more than two years ago defensively in center field. He's really turned himself into a tremendous center fielder. And what he did on Sunday was he not only made two incredible catches, the, the one in the second inning was awesome too. It's going to be forgotten about because it was the second inning. But that was huge because you never know with Jose Buto. You know, Nimmo don't make that play second inning, let's say runner on second, runner on third, one out. Who knows what happens? So he makes a great play in the second. And the one in the ninth, I mean, we don't even have to waste time with it because it's so obvious why it was huge. If he doesn't make that catch, Kemp scores from second, the New York Mets lose. There's no if, ands, or buts. If he does not make the catch, the Mets lose the game right then and there. He makes incredible, incredible diving play. And then to Jakob Bonus's credit, he gets Diaz to pop up to third base. Speaking of third base, so this will kind of mix into the Beatty stuff. We get the news before the game. Hey, Brett Beatty's coming. Eduardo Escobar, classy as ever, says all the right things about Beatty deserves to play. Beatty's earned everything he's about to get. Escobar is a class dude. You know, it, it's frustrating when a guy sucks and they're kind of oblivious to everything around them. I think Aaron Hicks has unfortunately done that with the Yankees, where he sucks and he'll go on about, well, I don't play enough. I don't know my role. That's an oblivious comment. Eduardo Escobar, and I know he's gotten the booze from Met fans, and we've been hard on him, but we can't be hard on him as a human because the guy gets it. Like, he understands it. So he has basically said, Brett, take the job. You've earned it. Now, Escobar, I thought, had a fascinating day because he knows the job's gone, but he's playing third base. He's batting eighth. He's sporting a 114 batting average. He grounds out in his first at-bat. What else is new? He gets absolutely robbed by Tony Kemp in left field in his second at-bat. Eddie, Eddie did nothing wrong. He should have had a double. Kemp makes a great play. Gets a weird infield hit in the eighth, but here's where I'm stunned by Eduardo Escobar. I told you how negative I was throughout this game, and I was. I always thought they were going to lose. I'm mean, perfectly honest. The one moment I had some confidence, which shows what kind of schmuck I can be, was in the ninth inning. So go back to the ninth. The Mets are down a run. Lindor gets robbed to start the inning. Alonzo, it's the bomb of a home run. Great, we're tied. We then watch Danny Jimenez walk on five pitches, uh, Mark Hanna. We see him walk Tommy Pham on four pitches. We see him walk Jeff McNeil on four pitches. The Mets now have the bases loaded with one out for Eduardo Escobar. And Mark Kotze, I know we had to get him in as at the game, but he does us a favor because he goes to Sam Mola lefty. So here's Escobar in the spot he wants to be in, batting right-handed, bases loaded one out. I swear I'm thinking this is Escobar's last stand. He's going to hit a grand slam. Like I was, I was convinced of it. 
It was the one moment, Pete, in this entire game where I was confident because that's going to be the perfect ending to his tenure as the third baseman. He goes out with class, and he ends it with a grand slam. Did you have that same naivete as me? Uh, no, I did not. I, I'm a little <laughs> bit more realistic with Edward Escobar. I know what's coming. I know it's obvious. It sticks out like a short thumb. It was not a grand slam. <laughs> really? I, this was it, though. I mean, this is his last moment, his last chance as the third baseman. You didn't think he was at least going to come through with something other than the worst possible thing, which was a 6-4-3 double play? No, and it was funny because earlier in the game, he did hit a shot that was crushed, smashed down the line, but went foul. So I'm like, okay, maybe he does have something in him. But at that moment, it, it was – no. I, I, I'm i sorry. I've read – I've seen this story so many times. I know the ending. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I really had no feel for the Sunday game because I was wrong about everything, including that. I thought that the one moment of positivity was Escobar would come through. The other thing about Escobar, and obviously ninth inning, that's the Yacobona inning, which we talked about, and the Mets got their run in the 10th inning on a freaking wild pitch. After Brandon Nimmo strikes out with a runner on third and less than two out, we could have he could have been the dog. We could have ripped him for it. The Mets get the run on the wild pitch, and then Vogelback, on three and one, hits the crap out of a ball, but right at the second baseman. I'm just happy Vogelbach wasn't looking for a walk. Bases loaded, three and one count. He actually tried to hit the ball, and he did. The problem was he smashed it right at uh, Diaz at second base. All right, so that's where I differ with you. I was all for him keeping that bat in his shoulders. Like, he is not productive with the bat in any sense whatsoever. At that point in time, he's got a better opportunity, as his on-base says, Take a walk. Look for the walk. Better better opportunity. That's my biggest problem with him. My biggest problem with Daniel Vogelback is while he does get on base, I feel sometimes he's looking for the walk. That, you know, you're a slugger. You get the count in a batter's favor. You got to take advantage of it. It can't just all be about let me get on base. You're not a leadoff hitter. You're a slugger. You're supposed to be. And so I can't kill him for it because he did hit the ball hard. It happens. But you got to have that aggressiveness. It's great that you have a good eye, and it's great that you're three and one a lot of the times. I saw, I forget which day it was. I apologize. He got the count three and one, and he took a fastball right down the middle. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, are you looking for a walk? Who, who do you think you are? But he grounds out, and now we're set up with Robertson at the bottom of the 10th inning. And it was, it was scary. <laughs> you know, he hits Langoliers to start it. He makes the play, even though he bobbled a little bit on the bunt sacrifice, gets the big out of Capel, and even after the wild pitch, he gets Ruiz to ground out. And as he gets him to ground out, balls hit to Escobar. I'm thinking the same thing, but reverse. Oh, no. Escobar is going to throw it away, and that's how his tenure is going to end. But he actually made the play. The Mets win it. A, a really a good victory and don't waste time talking about how bad the opponent is. There are a lot of bad teams in baseball. It doesn't mean you're going to beat them. Now the New York Mets last year didn't win the national league East. And there are many reasons why the Mets didn't win the NL East. But one of the reasons was that they didn't do a good enough job against bad teams. One of the reasons is that my guy, Jacob DeGrom came up very small against this Oakland A team a year ago. I'm not putting that all on him or that particular game, but the Met issues in September last year was because they didn't beat the bad teams enough. So if you have a friend of yours that's a non-Met fan, a Yankee fan, a Philly fan, 
who tries to say, ah, you swept the ace, who cares? You could just look at them and say, you're a schmuck. Because that's that's not how sports works. You have to beat what's in front of you. When you look at the standings, you're not analyzing who you beat. The Tampa Bay Rays have their record. It's not about who they've beaten and how they've gotten there. And a lot of times you win a series against a bad team, but you don't sweep them. And you walk away saying, God, man, we, we could have swept them. We should have swept them. And this finale felt like one of those could have, should have kind of days. And it turned out not to be because the Mets beat them and they swept the freaking Oakland A's. Now let's get to Beatty and we'll get to game one and game two. Why are they calling him up now? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Like what made today, Sunday into Monday, in the midst of this West Coast trip, what made this the moment? Was it Billy Epler watching Brett Beatty firsthand in Syracuse? Was it Escobar's continuing struggles and the idea that Buck will just turn Escobar and Guillaume into a platoon at third base? And we've seen signs of that. What was it? What made it? Was it just that it became so undeniable? And by the way, that's my answer. My answer on why now is that it became undeniable. Brett Beatty was so freaking good at AAA, playing at such a high level offensively, and from what I hear, playing fine defensively, that when you take that and combine it with how bad the third base situation has become with the Mets, it became undeniable. But the thing I love, and I remember saying this to you about a week or two ago, when we talked about when are they going to call him up? When's it going to happen? I remember saying one thing that's important is don't do it when you're losing. Don't do it when things are bad. Because then he comes up here and he has to be a savior. And what I love about this, Pete, not that the Mets knew they were going to win Sunday, but even if they didn't, they would have won a series against Oakland. They would have won a series against San Diego. They would have won a series against Miami. The Mets have won every series they've played this year outside of the disaster in Milwaukee. So even if they had lost this finale, you could say, hey, the Mets are still playing well in terms of wins and losses. And I like that because I was afraid that they were going to make this call, this decision to bring up Brett Beatty in the midst of a losing streak, in the midst of this team needs a savior. And while they didn't hit the crap out of the ball against the A's on Saturday and Sunday, I think on a four-game winning streak, coming off a sweep of Oakland, I don't think anyone's going to look at Brett Beatty as a savior. They're going to look at him as an upgrade, which is what he is. No doubt. And and that's that's been the struggle this whole time is why what's the excuse of why Beatty wasn't even on this team to begin with or whatever. They talked about the defense and uh and we we can see this te- this team as a whole right now. We talk about Brendan Emmo. you go back to that, that the the game today. The defense has been on a different level. So you take away the fact that Brett Beatty's coming in here just to not even talk about his bat, just the defensive skills. It's still what's been going on with Escobar at third base. Beatty's still on par or not an upgrade. Then you talk about the bad aspect of it and you're right. And the whole thing is, it's not about putting him in a pressure situation, but here's the thing is, are they stupid to ask this? Ev? But are they going to use him every day? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this one I'm not concerned about. He's going to play every day. I think the only question about him and his usage is going to be the lefty situation. Like, does he play every day against lefties? And while the Mets have run into a lot of lefties so far this season, to the point where Tommy Pham has actually played more than Daniel Vogelbach. Like, Tommy Pham has more plate appearances this season 
than Daniel Vogelbach has. And a part of that is how many lefties they faced. They are going to face one left-hander in Los Angeles. You may have heard of the man. His name is Clayton Kershaw. So they're going to get one lefty in L.A. and face two righties, Dustin May in the opener, Noah Syndergaard in the finale. And I'm not even going to talk about the Syndergaard thing. Who cares? He hasn't been on the team in a couple of years. He ducked him last year. Whatever. They're facing Noah Syndergaard on Wednesday. Yippity-doo-dah. But that's the, the fair question about Beatty. Will they play him against left-handed pitching? Um, my guess, I, my, my guess is actually, yeah. You know, believe it or not, I'm actually on the side of, I don't think they're going to F around with this kid. I think he's going to come up here and he's going to play every single day. Kershaw's a tough lefty to face though. So maybe, maybe, maybe that's the day to sit him. I, I will give you one quick story about the whole shitty play against lefties thing. Michael Conforto uh, obviously got off to a pretty good start in his career. And the year he got sent down, it all turned when he faced Madison Bumgarner. And I remember wanting Conforto to play, play against everybody, play against every lefty. So they gave him a shot against Bumgarner. Bumgarner schooled him, and it led to a massive slump. Now, I can't say that that specific game led to the slump, but it felt that way. So sometimes, as much as we scream and yell, Play him against everybody. You got nothing to lose. A bad day against the tough lefty could turn it into a massive slump. So you want to be smart about it. But I think the way Beatty's hitting right now, he's so locked in that maybe you just play him against everybody for a few weeks and hope that you can ride that hot streak that he's put together, not just through the first few weeks down in Syracuse, but what he did back in spring training. And the other thing, too, is back to your other point of, like, why it take right now to happen – um, you know, Billy going to Syracuse to go check out this team. I mean, did he really have to make that trek to see how well they're doing? Does he not have I maybe mean, he doesn't have Twitter? I think he does, though. You don't see the highlights every day between Mauricio, between Vientos, and Beatty every freaking day. They're crushing the ball. And, and Billy, Billy, MLB app now shows all the minor league games. A lot of Met fans, myself included. I've checked out some Syracuse games, and I've seen what we've all known, which is that all the kids are tearing it up. I think the simple answer is it became undeniable. It got to the point where Brett Beatty was saying it with his actions, with his play, not his words, what do you need me to do down here? Like what? I was in the major leagues last year, remember? I was up there. And I know I, I didn't perform at my best he did it a home run in his first major league at bat which was kind of cool but i think it just became the guys earned the trip up here and what i like about this and i know there are going to be some bad fans who are going to deny this i don't think eduardo escobar is completely done like i i wouldn't dfa him i wouldn't just say i sucks get rid of him but i love now kind of shifting him into that bench role because we talked about this last week. When Tomas Nito has to come off your bench as a pinch hitter, that's a problem with your bench. Say what you want about Escobar and how he's played so far and the start he got off to last year. You put him up in a big spot. Give me him nine out of ten times over Tomas Nito. So I think it actually strengthens your bench. And who knows? Maybe it takes the pressure off him. Maybe he starts to hit. I think he'll still get at-bats. I don't think he just goes into the oblivion. The question's going to be, and it's the, the question we had all through spring training, how do the Mets make this work roster-wise? 
In the short term, you just send Budo down. You have the extra position player. But long term, they're going to want the eight guys out of the bullpen. I, I got to make this clear, Pete. You could yell at me. You can't take Tim LaCastro off this team. I'm sorry. He's way too valuable. And you could tell me he's 0 for 8. He doesn't hit. Dude, every time they put this man in as a pinch runner and Saturday's game, and we'll get to it, is a great example. Tim LaCastro won the game with his legs for the New York Mets on Saturday afternoon. I'm sorry, he did. I don't know if they go ahead and take the lead in the seventh, if not for Tim LaCastro. So I think it's important to have that designated pinch runner. So the easy answer is, ah, you just get rid of Timmy LaCastro. I don't want to do it. Do you want to do it? No, I have the answer, and it's not going to It's going to make some people happy. It's not going to make the Mets organization happy. Um, it's Daniel Vogelback. It's it's his time has come as a as a Mets. It's, it's over. It's he is not productive enough as a power hitter. The one thing he hasn't done in the however many games he's been a Met, he hasn't shown power. He can show he can get on base, but he doesn't play a position. And if you're telling me who do I prefer, Tim LaCastro or Daniel Vogelback? Yes, Vogelback maybe as a pinch hitter, but that's one element of the game. And LaCastro gives speed. And he give the defensive depth in the outfield, which Vogelback does nothing on that. On that I wouldn't play. do that either. I wouldn't do that either because even though he hasn't hit for pop yet this season and really hasn't done much offensively, which I can't deny, I wouldn't give up on him because I still think he's going to be your designated hitter against right-handed pitching for now. That can change. I think Ronnie Mauricio is going to become the next prospect pounding on the door. Mark Vientos too. So I'm not saying this is forever. But in the short term, I wouldn't do that either. I, I think that you have you have two options, and neither one of them are great. I'll be honest with you. One is what I've been screaming about, and I know the Mets don't want that, and that's just deal with an extra position player and use that seventh spot in your bullpen as kind of a, a shuttle service. Okay, Right now, Buto goes down, which makes perfect sense because Buto can't be used for five more days. He's not remaining in the rotation unless something is wrong with Max Scherzer. So Budo goes down. So in the short term, great, Beatty's up. Budo goes down. I think at some point, Yacobonis goes down. You replace him with another pitcher. Denny Reyes is going to stay up here because he's pitching so well. But I think you can kind of work around the seven relievers. But it's not going to be sustainable if their starting pitching isn't going deep into games. And it's not. Nobody is. Even when guys pitch well, you know, Tyler McGill going five or six innings is not enough. You're going to need to mix in a seven, eight, dare I say what Garrett Cole did on Sunday, a nine-inning performance. The other option is Luis Giorme because he has options. Because you can send him down. Do you lose a lot in terms of versatility? You do a little bit, especially because of how good he is defensively. But you're looking for offense. That's what this is about. You're looking for a little for pop. You're looking for more production, and you get that with Beatty on the roster. And you don't lose that with Giorme going into the minors. But either way, very exciting news. I mean, I think we're all pumped up about it because it became, like I said, undeniable. Brett Beatty needed to be here, and he did. Quickly on the roster, and then we'll get to game one and two, Steven Nagosik from the Friday game gets a line drive. What I thought was off his ass, it wasn't. It was off his elbow. 
and he's on the injured list, which sucks because I think Nagosik kind of fit that longish reliever role pretty well. And the Dennis Santana era is over. We hardly knew. We hardly knew you, Dennis. He actually got the victory on Friday, and his congratulations was get the hell out of here. So those are your roster moves. And one other thing, kind of the final thing from the finale of this series from Sunday, the Mets won an extra inning game. In 2022, the Mets were 10 and 2 in extra inning games. In 2021, a year in which they finished under 500, they were 11 and 7 in extra inning games. So since the 2021 season with this weird Fugazi Manfred man on second, the New York Mets are 22 and 9 in extra inning games does not change my view on the rule, but the Mets have, they've done a pretty good job with the Manfred man on second. Do you like that rule? By the way, Pete, we've never had a broad discussion about it. I'm not a fan. And that'll be a different discussion about how quick people want games to finish. They don't want the games dragging on. Uh, We're not, we haven't even gotten to it. Maybe not this podcast, but the, Complaints now about the pitch clock and how fast games are going, and well, how people people okay. cannot compl- cannot stand a two hour and seven minute game at Yankee Stadium. That that's okay. Not- so the Yankees have been flying through games, and they had a two hour seven minute game on Sunday afternoon. Real quick, this three game series against Oakland. Hear me out. Game one, three hours and twenty nine minutes. Game two, two forty six, which is. Not long, but certainly longer than the average. Game three, three hours, three minutes. So we as Met fans have not dealt with quick games, at least in this series. Listen, 17 walks by the A's, and it was a three-hour and 30-minute game. Oh, That's yes. pretty quick. That's pretty quick for 17 walks. <laughs> I was telling my wife that. I said, listen, if there was no pitch clock, especially with Familia not throwing strikes in the ninth, that's a four-and-a-half-hour game. But, okay, let's get to the opener of this series. This was, on so many levels, one of the most bizarre baseball games I've ever seen. You've got the Met booth right off the top explaining to us that a possum was living in the road broadcast booth. And Gary, in the most eloquent way he can, says, yeah, so the possum crapped a lot. It smells so bad, we needed to move to another booth. So we've got that. Right off the top, we have them telling us halfway through, right after I wrote Ring Central Coliseum in my scorebook, that it isn't Ring Central Coliseum anymore. Now it's back to the Oakland Alameda Coliseum. We got Kodai Senga, who was okay for a while in this game. We got Kodai Senga warming up in the bullpen in the middle of the game because the Met half innings are taking too long. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. We have Oakland A's security with 11,000 people in attendance taking away the ghost forkball signs that the Met fans are trying to hang up. And then you've got the middle finger guy. The middle finger guy is my favorite. And I don't know how many people saw this because this was the ninth inning. So the game was way out of reach and it was one o'clock in the morning. But the SNY cameras now show us this bearded gentleman holding a foam finger. He's just holding it. He looks awkward. He looks depressed. He's in Oakland. Of course he's depressed. He just had to pee in a trough at Oakland Alameda Coliseum while watching his baseball team issue 17 walks. You'd be depressed too. See, so standing with, with the foam finger, and Gary and Ronnie make some 
comment like, oh, look at him with his foam finger. Familia <laughs> proceeds on the next pitch to walk his fourth straight guy. Okay. They flash back to the dude with the foam finger. And he just like, I don't even know if he knows the camera's on him. He just picks up his other hand, the one that doesn't have the foam finger, and just goes and gives a middle finger. And SNY quickly flashes it away. And I am cracking up. I'm laughing my ass off. Like, what just happened? And I don't know if he knew the camera was there. Maybe he did. And he's like, all right, stop showing me. Stop showing me. Okay, I'll make you stop showing me. You're number one. Or it was just a weird coincidence. But this this was bizarre. And oh, yeah, there's another bizarre moment. So Jairus Familia is pitching the ninth inning. Now, Jairus Familia came in the eighth inning, pitched a one, two, three inning. He barely broke a sweat. So it's looking like, all right, he's going to get through this real quick. Even got the first guy out in the ninth inning. And he's ahead of Lindor 0-2. He then throws four straight out of the zone, walks him. Okay, no big deal. Then he walks Alonzo. Then he walks McNeil. Then he walks Vogel back and a run scores. And Kotze, no, it was the ace pitching coach. I don't think it was Mark Kotze. Comes out to the mound to say, all right, jackass, you've walked four guys in a row. We're losing this game by a million runs. Can you please throw a strike? The A's don't realize they've run out of mound visits because they use them all during their cavalcade of walks. So the umpires now start meeting over this. Boy, if Keith Hernandez was doing this game, he would have had a coronary. And Gary's like, oh, I guess they may review if that was ball four or not. That wasn't the problem. The problem was they didn't have any mound visits yet left, and someone came to the mound. So the umpires, Dan Ayasanya, goes to Kotze and says, I'm sorry. You need to take Familia out of the game. That's the penalty. So they take him out of the game and they bring in their backup catcher, Carlos Perez, to pitch. And that's when Escobar drives in a two-run double. So Escobar has got four RBIs this season, never gets a hit, faces a 48-mile-an-hour meatball from a backup catcher, and he's like, what can I do? And he rips a two-run double. Oh, my God. I, and the only reason I watch this is because I'm sick. Because I, I, I'm i a sick, sick human. I shouldn't have watched any of this. The first five innings were bad enough. And by bad, it wasn't bad because the Mets were winning. Like when they scored six runs in the second, that's not bad. When the A's cut it to six to three, and then they score six more in the top of the fifth, it's not bad. But it's bad, if that makes any sense. Like, the results were good. I'm happy but the baseball was bad. Like no human being wants to watch 17 walks, but it helped our team. And so when Hogan Harris, who I don't think is a real human when I saw his name, but apparently he is, makes his major league debut, walks five effing guys, hits a guy, gets sent down after the game. I don't know if that's a real human. But the Mets were at least able to take advantage of it. But my God, that was an abomination of a baseball game. Do you feel bad for the Oakland A's fans? Which is, listen, and for all the bad years the Mets have had, which we've had plenty, I don't think it's ever been this low where it's like, oh my God, like we need to get up and move the team. And I don't, like, 
I, there were how many people in, in the three games in Oakland? How many people do you think were there in total? Uh, they announced like 11,000 on Friday, 12,000 on Saturday, a little bump on Sunday because they were honoring the 73 A's. But how many people were actually there? There may not have been more than 35,000 for the three games. That's and they, those, they must be committed fans because, or maybe they should be committed because that to me, it's, it's just so, the team is so putrid. It's a disgusting ballpark. Everything about it is just bad. Yeah. It, the impression and, and Gary and Ron talked about it on the broadcast. My dad called me up and told me about that. Basically said this, this is a disgrace. The baseball needs to change. And there are a lot of issues with the Oakland A's. My biggest issue is that they're owned by a billionaire, and yet they've tried to lose on purpose, basically, for the last two years. That's what they've done. And it's not to tank. I think it's to leave Oakland. I I think that's what's going on. So I don't know when they're going to end up in Vegas and when they're going to get a new stadium. And magically, this billionaire owner will start spending when that happens. But yeah, it was sad. I mean, they're, they're a disgraceful franchise right now. They've had success recently. They obviously had success during the money ball era, but even more recently, they've made the postseason. But what they've done the last two years is embarrassing. With that said, you got to beat them. You know, it's not my problem. I'm not an Oakland A's fan. But yeah, we never experienced anything this bad because as much as we killed the Wilpons, they didn't have a $30 million payroll. They weren't just trading guys off. They weren't trying to move the team out. So yeah, we had our own issues. But they are, they're putrid. They're a horrible, horrible baseball team right now. And yeah, if you're an Oakland A fan, you almost think that your baseball team's going the way of your football team. They're going to end up in Vegas. And then it's up to you if you want to keep rooting for them. I thought it was sad that they honored the 73 team on Sunday and they didn't even get that big of a bump of a crowd. And I think a part of the problem is when you honor a team that was 50 years ago, the only people that remember it are people who are senior citizens. And that's not a knock on anybody who's a senior citizen. If you're listening right now, good for you, but you can't expect 30,000 people to show up because most humans, most people who don't remember something, even if they appreciate history, aren't going to show up for an event that honors that team. The only people that are going to show up are people that remember it. So you're basically saying you better be 65 or older if you want to come to this event. And, And that's really what it was. But I'm glad the Mets won. Kodai Senga, I kind of throw the outing out. I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but it was so weird. It was so much time in between half innings. When he starts warming up in the bullpen, I thought that was a warning sign. And he did that before the fifth. And remember the situation going into the fifth. He had just allowed the two-run home run to Langoliers in inning earlier. But he had the lead. And if he could get three outs in the fifth inning, he's on pace to get a get a victory. And he got the first two guys out in the fifth inning. Gives up the home run to Diaz, walks Connor Capel, his pitch counts 96. And Buck Showalter says, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't. I know you probably want to win a game, but pitch count of 96. I just gave you two batters. You couldn't get either one of them out. And Senga gets pulled in the fifth inning. We mentioned that was the game where Nagosik got hurt, got hit by a line drive. And the Mets won, but it was, it was a really, really bad baseball game. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there was anything else from this game that I missed. I got the uh, pitching change because of the mound visits, the possum that lives in the booth. You got the middle finger guy, middle finger guy. 
I think there were two other people that were having sex in center field. I don't know if I mentioned that one. I think they were going at it in center field. Good for them. I mean, why not? Uh, yeah, I think I have it covered. Oh, and the guy's dancing. I mean, just dancing all freaking night. Like, what are you doing? Are you paid by the A's? They must be paid by the A's. They must be like paid uh, mascots. Yeah, they sit there dancing the entire game. Their team's losing 17 to 6, and they're dancing to just like, horrible drums being banged. Is that like Fireman Ed or now? <laughs> Don't disrespect Fireman Ed <laughs> like that now. Come on. Uh, let's get the game two of this series. Cookie Carrasco. Cookie is facing the Oakland A's. Would that be enough to get him going? And I'll say he was all right. Like, he wasn't great. He wasn't dominant. He pitched into the sixth inning. He hit three guys, which was crazy. And he got through that. Set. The second inning I thought was going to be his death now. Puts the first two guys on base. Gives up a huge two-out hit to Esturi Ruiz, which I thought was a huge moment in the game because he had a chance to get out of that jam, only allowing a run. They're down 2 nothing, but from there he really settled in. He pitched a 1-2-3 third. He got a huge out in the fourth when Mark Canna made a nice running catch and pitched a 1-2-3 fifth inning. He was, you know, five innings, two runs. If you consider Carrasco a back-of-the-rotation arm, which is what you have to consider him, you'll take five innings, two runs every day of the week. The only issue you have is five innings, two runs is nice, but it adds up when everybody's going five innings. That That's a problem. Carlos Carrasco goes five innings the day after Kodai Senga goes four and two-thirds. That's the problem. Tyler McGill, I know they had an off day mixed in, on Wednesday pitches really well. He goes five innings. The game before that, David Peterson goes five and two-thirds innings. The game before that, Max Scherzer goes five innings. The game before that, Carlos Carrasco goes four and two-thirds innings. Like, they hadn't had a guy pitch six innings since a week earlier when Kodai Senga did it against the Miami Marlins. Five innings over and over and over and over again is going to test your bullpen. And the Met bullpen so far has been up to the test. In game two of this series, Drew Smith came through in a huge way. Little lucky, little lucky, gets a line driver out of Pete Alonso that turns into a double play, but he was able to get a huge strikeout of that Kevin Smith. Actually, no, not Kevin Smith. He got a huge strikeout of Connor Capel right after he got that double play, and he pitched reasonably well, and Brooks Rally pitched really, really well, and Adam Adovino was shaky as all hell but got the huge strikeout when he needed, and then you had David Robertson who has been unbelievably awesome. I mean, David Robertson has been a dream filling in for Edwin Diaz as the high-leverage best reliever on this team. And the Met offense did just enough, and they did it with the long ball. Think about it. Saturday and Sunday was really about the long ball. Five home runs in those two games really supplying like 90% of their offense. Pete Alonzo, the home run that made it 2-1. to one. Mark Canna, the home run that made it 2-2. Two to two and the huge RBI double by Brandon Nimmo in the seventh that made it 3-2. to two. And that followed Timmy LeCastro pinch running for Daniel Vogelback and immediately stealing second base. He has not been caught stealing yet. He has been awesome as that designated pinch runner, hence why I can't get rid of him, hence why he's important. His legs on Saturday led to him being on second base with two outs so that when Brandon Nimmo rips the double – 
he scores without question. That is really, really important to this team to have a guy like Lo Castro that at any moment becomes a base-stealing threat. Now let's get to Robertson because what we saw in the ninth inning on Saturday was everything Pete Hoffman and you pitch clock haters had feared. David Robertson, just to go through the ninth real quick, gives up a leadoff single. Asturi Ruiz lays down a bunt. Whatever. Stupid. But he does. Runner on second, one out. Robertson gets Tony Kemp to tap right in front of Alvarez, two outs. Two outs, runner on third. That's the tying run. The batter is Kevin Smith. The count is one and two. David Robertson comes set. As he's throwing the pitch, you see Scott Barry signal violation. Robertson throws, I think it was a curveball, right down the middle. Gary Cohn's oblivious because he screams strike three. I knew it was a pitch clock violation. And by the way, it was a pitch clock violation. SNY quickly shows the replay. It was a pitch clock violation. In that moment, are we upset? Or do we just say, All right, it was a pitch clock violation. Now it's one and two. Go get him out. I'm pissed. I'm like, uh-oh, now we have to do this again. There's a little energy there wasted because Robertson and Alvarez look like, like the game's over. I know that they called it right away, but still, he thought he got the pitch. Now he has to go out and do it again, and I, I hate that. That that pisses me off because you're giving an opportunity to the to the other team. Throw the pitch before it hits zero. Dude, but he did. Like, like I know he. I, I know he. I know he didn't. But this is what Scherzer was complaining about the whole time during spring training. Was I want to figure out where is the line? What is it like football? Do you get an extra beat with the play clock, dude? This is this is so stupid and annoying because every ump is going to be a little different. Are they going to be on point? Is this this guy's being a stickler, dude? The Cody Bellinger stuff from the weekend, getting a a fan. A standing ovation from the fan base from the first time you return and the umpire gives him a strike because they didn't get in there in eight seconds. That's different. That is very, very different. And I agree with you. That's stupid. I think we need to use common sense sometimes. So when you see it's a special moment, when you see that there is a standing ovation, don't start the pitch clock. But I mean, it's, I think you can have the discretion as an umpire to say, Hey, we're not pausing the pitch clock. I'm not starting it yet. I see what's going on. I see there's going to be a standing ovation. I see the guy may want to tip his hat. I'm not going to start anything. And I think that's that, that to me is dumb. And I think the umpire should use common sense with that. In this case, David Robertson didn't get the pitch off. Now, for the 10 seconds before he threw the next pitch, I was very nervous because I know David Robertson hates the pitch clock. But he's a veteran <laughs> and he's been around. And he also has to take a deep breath. It went from 0-2 to 1-2. It's not the end of the world. Go get Kevin Smith out. And he did. He threw a fastball right down the middle. And Smith didn't swing again. And that was that was beautiful because if he gives up a hit, we never hear the end of it. It would have been pitch clock debate all day amongst us as Met fans. And instead, it's a footnote. I think Kevin Smith took that strike three because he knew he was out on the pitch prior. 
I'm, 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 I can 100% comp to that. I think he was like, dude, take it. I, I'll take the L. I don't know how long this David Robertson train is going to last, but he has been remarkable this year. The Mets, so far, and you knock on wood because they're heading to L.A., they haven't had a game yet in which, oh, Vedman Diaz is pitching the ninth inning. Everything's different. Now, there is a part of me that says, my God, can you imagine Robertson setting up Edwin Diaz? That would be super. That would be the best bullpen in baseball. But he has the experience. He has the calmness. He's pitched here. He's closed before. And can't say enough about how great David Robertson has been as the Mets sweep the Oakland A's 3-0. I did say before this West Coast trip started, give me 5-5. Five and five. Well, at 3-0, and 5-5 oh, five and five don't feel as good now. Because that means two and five the rest of the way. So I up it up a little bit. I look at this Dodgers series. I don't want to go into a series saying just win a game. And the Dodgers haven't been great. They haven't. They're a flawed team this year. But I do look at these next seven games and say, I can't complain about three and four. I can't complain about, hey, let's get out of this West Coast trip just okay. Because three and four is a six and four trip. And you look at these pitching matchups. I think the L.A. Dodgers have the starting pitching edge in two of these games. Dustin May has been great taking on David Peterson. It was a real wild card. You, you just don't know what to expect from Peterson start to start. Tyler McGill's been mostly good against Clayton Kershaw. And then you got Scherzer against Noah Syndergaard. Syndergaard has struggled so far with the Dodgers. And that's assuming Scherzer pitches. Because I know Max very aggressively was like, oh, yeah, I could have pitched. It would have been selfish to pitch. Uh, I knew we were going to use an extra starter, so why not? Go out and make the start. When a guy gets pushed back, and I say this about everybody, not just Max, I have a skepticism that he's okay until he makes the start. Because pushed back means you probably weren't able to make that start initially. So will everything be different in three days? I don't know. I do take credit for one thing, though, Pete. I made one weird, obscure prediction from a week ago, and that was Kodai Senga would not face the Dodgers, that the Mets would use whether it was the sixth guy with Budo, whatever it was, they'd push him back. And they have successfully done that. So now he's going to start the opener of the series in San Francisco against the Giants. And that's not about avoiding the Dodgers. It's about getting him the extra day. Because Senga is so used to pitching with that five days or more of rest. So I think the Mets are always going to go out of their way specifically with him to give him extra rest. And here's what's great. He'll get extra rest in his next start after that too because they play four games against the Giants and then have an off day before they come back to New York to take on the Nationals. So Senga is set up to face the Giants on Thursday night and then the Nationals the week after at City Field. So it sets up nicely for Kodai as he's going to look to bounce back from what was an average start against Oakland. Uh, one other thing, though, I was wrong about, happily wrong, Francisco Alvarez started two of the three games, not one of the three games, including back-to-back -back efforts on Saturday and Sunday. He has done very little <laughs> offensively. Uh, he was 0 for 3 on Saturday. He was 0 for 4 on Sunday, hit a couple of fly balls to right, hit a fly ball to left in which Tony Kemp made a nice running catch. Uh, there was one wild pitch that was a little ugly, but he also made that throw to second that kind of led to the interference on the strike him out, throw him out double play. 
So I don't think overall his defense has been bad at all, but he hasn't done anything offensively. So what do we do from here? Three games against the Dodgers, one lefty, day game after night game. Pete, does he start one game or two games? I, I think if the trend is going in this direction, which is good, it's got to be two games. It has to be. Yeah, I think he's going to start one. I think he's going to start the Kershaw game. I think he'll start against the lefty. I think he's definitely going to sit on Monday because he's already played two games in a row. And we'll see Peterson sitting uh, together with Tomas Nito. I think we'll see Alvarez catch Tyler McGill, which I think he did in his last start too. Did he do that on the Wednesday afternoon? I got to go look that one up. Uh, did he start? No, because he did. He, he did. He did. The he did. Peterson. You're right. He did. Because we were talking about right. how it looked like, like uh, Schwarzenegger, DeVito and twins. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think they're going to split that up. I think we're going to see him catch McGill this time, not Peterson. And then the afternoon game off a night game. I think he goes back to Tomas Nito to catch Max Scherzer. That's my prediction. And then we'll see what happens in the four games against San Francisco. But like you said, Pete, it is trending nicely that Buck gave him the two starts in a row. And I don't think they're, I don't think they're going to kill him for his offense because look, it's not like Tomas Nito's Johnny bench back there. I think to me, for him to get more starts, it is the defense. It, it, that's really the thing they're going to look at for him to remain on the field because I think there's a confidence that the offense will come, that eventually he'll start to hit. And he's just a lot better than Tomas Nito anyway. You know, even, even with Alvarez doing nothing, he's a better offensive player than Tomas Nito. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't ground double plays every time he's up. That That's a positive. That's true. Hasn't happened yet. So he may feel, strike out a lot, but that's that's okay. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> so a feel-good Rico and a feel-good weekend as the Mets sweep the Oakland A's. We'll give you another Rico after the Dodgers series. Maybe we'll do some late-night reactions, depending on how we feel at 1 o'clock in the morning. I do need the Mets to play some shorter games. As much as Yankee fans are upset with how quick the games are, that was a lot of baseball at the Oakland Alameda Coliseum over three days. Two three-hour games? Hello? But it was win, win, win. Four-game winning streak, 10-6 and six to start the season. So for anyone who is overly concerned, I, does everybody feel better? Like, are Met fans starting to feel better at 10-6? and six? Are we looking at this saying, all right, maybe we don't suck. Maybe we're not going to lose 100 games. <laughs> maybe this season isn't going to hell in a handbasket. By the way, last year through 16 games, the New York Mets were 11-5. and five. So we are one game off the pace that the Mets sat last year at when they ended up winning 101 games. Email the pod anytime, ricob at gmail.com. We appreciate you listening. I'll be with Craig all week on the fan at two. Hoffman with Tiki and Tierney. Happy Rico, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronio podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 